0: In the 1944 movie, Rogue's Gallery, a wisecracking journalist turned detective suddenly realizes the key to cracking the case is right in front of her.
1: You're close enough to kill her right now to spit on him, you know that, don't you? You know, I'd give anything if you could prove that.
0: Maybe we still can. Uh, May we use your phonograph? My phonograph? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, sure, it's right over there.
0: It turns out the phonograph had captured audio of the murder taking place.
1: So you were listening in, yes? And I also know that you're the man who tried to kill Foster and stole the blueprints. You tried to kill Griffith, too.
2: Don't. Don't, Jimmy.
0: Don't! With the help of that cutting-edge phonograph technology, the case is closed and the detectives move on to cracking the next whodunning.
3: Well,
1: here, here we, we go again. again.
0: From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. These days, we don't have phonographs that record us in our living rooms, but we do have smartphones and smart speakers. Today, we look at how new technology is changing the way we look at criminal evidence in the courtroom. Later in the show, the challenge of combating cybercrime.
3: The landscape for picking targets and for victimizing is moving faster then the criminal justice system can keep up with it.
0: But first, Jeff Bellin is a professor of law at the College of William & Mary. He studies how courts handle digital evidence like social media posts and text messages. And he says even casual messages you send to friends can be admitted into court. When it comes to Facebook, Instagram, or text messages, do you remember a moment when you realized, oh my gosh, this is the new thing? As far as evidence in court?
4: Yeah, sure. So that, that for me, when I watched these services, and I actually joined Twitter, for example, for research purposes. Like I wasn't interested in it as a service. I just felt like I needed to understand these new uh, ways that people were communicating. Uh, and so when I joined Twitter, I, I thought to myself that this could have been created by an evidence professor. Because <laughs> Twitter was basically a way of generating evidence. So typically you're not allowed to introduce out of court statements during trials, right? You have to hear from the live witnesses. So I could I could testify about seeing someone hit someone else with a bat, but I couldn't testify that someone told me that they saw John hit Sally with a bat. Right. To get into court, the evidence has to be from the person who saw the thing live, not someone Telling the jury what someone else told them. But then there's exceptions. And so the one that might resonate with people most famously is there's an exception for dying declarations. So if someone says something right before they die, that will typically be admissible in evidence, even though it was made out of court. And then there's an exception for the present sense impressions. And so present sense impressions are things that you talk about that are occurring as you talk about them or just happened a few seconds before. And that's where Twitter comes in. So Twitter, to the extent people are tweeting out things that they just saw, that seemed like a way to generate evidence. But what replaced it, or what took over, was text messaging. So people use text messaging like a kind of personal Twitter service, and so they're texting friends and associates about things that they're seeing happening right at that moment. And so what's interesting about text messages is they're a message, a casual message from one person to another that would be admissible in court as evidence of whatever the person was texting because of the hearsay exception I was telling you about.
0: Let's say we're in the car, we have our phone, we get pulled over by police. Can the police search my phone?
4: Not just based on what you told me. Usually you need a warrant to search something uh, and then there's a bunch of warrant exceptions. And so if, unless the police have reason to suspect that there is evidence of a crime on your phone, and I, have no th- I don't think there is personally, <laughs> uh, then they wouldn't be able to get a warrant from a judge to search your phone. But then there's exceptions to that as well. Uh, and so one exception is that you're allowed to search uh, things that are on a person when you arrest them. So if they arrested you for something, it used to be that they could search your phone, and the Supreme Court actually recently held uh, that they could no longer do that. They, even if they arrest you, they need a warrant to search your phone. but that, so, so that's protected in a sense, but all I'm saying is that they need a warrant. That would mean they would, ne- they would need to go to a judge and show that there is probable cause to believe that there is evidence of a crime on your phone. If they did that, then the answer is yes, they could search your phone. But they can't just uh, stop you in traffic and search your phone. What they could do is they could ask you, uh, can I take a look at your phone? And then if you said yes, then they would be able to look uh, to the degree that you let them.
0: What if you say no? Are you allowed to say no?
4: You are. You are allowed to say no. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense uh, that they would uh, need to ask you. And so, if you say no, then your phone is protected legally from the police searching it, unless they go find, uh, go get a warrant to search your phone. Now, they can do other things to get at evidence on your phone, such as they can go to your cell phone provider and ask them for uh, your text messages or call history or things like that. But again, they'd need a warrant to do those things. And this is legally what's required, uh, not necessarily uh, what happens in every case.
0: Have social media posts, these text, Instagram photos, this sort of thing, created a new kind of evidence that never existed before?
4: Absolutely, they have. And and it works in two ways. So one is that people are using this kind of uh, these tools to communicate all sorts of information to each other and this is really important, that is stored in a way that this type of communication didn't used to be stored. And so if you work at all in the criminal justice system or any kind of investigation or you ask your kids questions, you'll see that no one really remembers things all that great, especially as time passes. And what's really different about the way we're communicating with each other now uh, through text messages and social media is that it's preserved for potentially forever. And so little side comments that you make in unguarded moments uh, or uh, clever observations you have about, oh, it's so funny that my kid doesn't really drive safely. Uh, these kind of things that you put on social media, thinking nothing of them, could someday become relevant to some kind of litigation. And then what's different is that, you know, instead of the police having to get your spouse to tell them about some, you know, off color incriminating thing you said— If they can get at your Facebook page or get your text messages through Verizon, uh, then they can see what you said. And that, like I was talking about before, that can be used against you in court uh, for various reasons, one one being that statements that you made that are used against you in a court proceeding are allowed, even though they're uh, not live testimony.
0: How are we noticing defense attorneys using or combating this kind of evidence?
4: Well, so the obviously, obviously way to combat it is to talk about uh, various, uh, like I was saying, there's old legal rules that continue to apply in these contexts that are supposed to require live witness testimony. And so defense attorneys can object to, you know, generic text messages and Facebook posts saying, well, that's, that's not the witness. I want to I have the witness come to court and testify. You can't just introduce this statement, a piece of paper uh, about me. The, the American system of criminal justice and courts generally is that we are supposed to have live witnesses testify about the facts that matter. And so a statement like a text message or a face a social media post should not be admissible as a general matter because those are not live witnesses testifying in court. Those are people talking outside of court. They're not under oath. Often there there's no chance to cross-examine them because they don't come to trial. And so it shouldn't be the norm that this type of evidence comes into court. And and that's where that's where this kind of clash of the old legal rules and the new social norms and technology is most interesting. Right. Is that we've just hit upon certain ways of communicating that fit old evidence exceptions and allow the out of court statements to be used in trials.
0: How long have we had an exception for text messages that are considered excited <laughs> utterance.
4: Well, so so never in the sense that these are just exceptions for excited utterances that happen to capture uh, text messages. And so when people wrote the exceptions, they were thinking of uh, people watching a fire. And so they would uh, yell to the police, there's a fire, come quick, or yell to the fire uh, fire station or call the fire station. And we saw lots of cases where people would call 911 and say, there's been a shooting uh, and things like that and so that that's what that's a typical excited utterance and in fact there's a kind of moment i had where you know my uh, kind of old mind uh, i thought you couldn't have a text message that would be an excited utterance because why would someone text something or, like an emergency like that you would certainly pick up the phone and call 911 uh, but uh, after a while my students convinced me that in fact uh, no one calls even for emergencies anymore and what you do now is you text about everything and you'd put the appropriate emoji to to convey that the house was on fire or something like that which just baffles my mind because it would take me about 10 minutes to text i have been stabbed so i would, I would try and make a call and hopefully they would still have a a one person sitting there who would answer the phone still for me.
0: Is there a case where emojis or punctuation mattered for excited utterance?
4: Well, so yes. So so the exclamation point will matter. And the emoji is just so like part of the problem uh, with law generally is that a lot of the people who decide how to apply the rules are uh, not the same demographic as the people whose evidence is coming into evidence. And so if you have a 19-year-old texting something with emojis, and a 65-year-old judge is trying to decide, like I was thinking, well, this couldn't possibly be an excited utterance because it would take a long time to text. And so it would be crazy to, if you were really scared of something, to text that to someone. There's this kind of disconnect. But judges are starting to understand that people's communication practices are changing. And so things like, you know, when you're looking at a text message, how can you tell if it's an excited utterance? For an oral communication, the... The analysis is obvious you ask was the person who said it kind of shaking yelling were they uh, aggravated was there an event that was really scary that happened just before that for a text message it's a little harder because you can't ask about their tone of voice and things like that and so what else could you look for you'd look for obviously the context but also like you said emojis and exclamation points and i feel silly saying that because that's not how i would do it Uh, but i think that is part of how people communicate And that's how the evidence rules have to work. They're more about what are people communicating than, you know, about what's the correct way. So if people start to communicate that they're excited using emojis, then the evidence code will adjust to that. So if it's like a horrific car crash and you say something, even if you were talking and you weren't really visibly excited, a court would accept that, well, most people would be excited in that circumstance and probably you were excited too. And so that would carry over into text messaging. And so the main factor is going to be, what is it that you're reporting about? And if it's something that's really exciting, then there'll be a strong sense that it's probably an excited utterance. But no one wants to talk about the other exception, the present sense impression exception. But that's why I think it's so important. That exception, which used to be almost never used, is now center stage because it's about, communications of dull, mundane things. So if I just said, like, the engineer here is bored to death with this interview, and I texted that oh, she's shaking her—she's loving the interview. But imagine that she was bored with the interview, and I texted that to you. That would just be a present-sense impression. And so it would be uh, not an excited utterance, but it would still be admissible under the hearsay rules because it's me texting about something that's happening while I'm texting or close in time to when I'm texting— And that exception, I think, is what's most important because people are constantly texting and putting on social media, and I don't mean this to judge, but I've observed, things that aren't really that exciting. And because of that, those things are captured and they're sitting around on computers and in Verizon's data banks. And then later, 30 days later, when someone asks about, you know, why would the engineer have busted up the studio after that interview, they can go find this silly text I sent and say, huh, maybe they were so incensed that the programming has gone downhill that they crashed the studio as a result. Like really mundane things like that can actually be introduced into evidence later on because of this obscure hearsay exception that was created in like the 1800s based on a rationale that no longer even has any remote application to how we communicate.
0: When you teach this about social media evidence to your law students, does it make them less willing to leave a 21st century paper trail? Have you seen very specific reactions to their very social media lives?
4: They view this stuff as just part of their lives. And so the idea that you would stop texting or stop using social media just is not an option to them. Like people like me, like criminal justice scholars and privacy scholars will, will think, oh, well, that's because they don't understand. But I think in a way it's partly that, but it's partly because we don't understand how valuable these tools are for them and what they're getting out of them. And so it's a balance for people. And I think when you tell them, well, you're losing some privacy here, you're making yourself vulnerable in some ways, they already seem to know about that. And what they're thinking is, yeah, but I'm gaining a lot. I'm I'm reaching out and getting connections. And what I found is that if you talk, especially to younger people, and you say, do you remember this event? There is so much valuable information beyond what they actually remember that they have access to. They'll, re- they'll say, oh, well, I text my friend about that. And I have my calendar. And I have all this information. And so just kind of being aware that this evidence is out there is really powerful and so some of the younger generation of attorneys I think are going to be able to take advantage of this in a way that uh, some of the more wise and elder attorneys are not.
0: Jeff Bellin is a professor of law at the College of William & Mary. He was named Outstanding Faculty by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. New technologies are now part of trying cases and solving crimes, but they can also be used to commit crimes. My next two guests have co-authored a textbook about cybercrime. Rod Graham is a professor of sociology and criminal justice at Old Dominion University. Sean Smith is a professor of criminal justice at Radford University. They say the jury is still out on what even counts as a crime in the digital world. Rod, let me start with you. After taking this deep dive into the world of cybercrime, what do you now understand about cybercrime that maybe you didn't before, or at least the rest of us don't fully appreciate?
2: Well, I guess for me, it was uh, just how... Much we don't know. Just the wide variety of crimes that would fit under that cybercrime label. So, most people think about hacking, uh, maybe phishing, those are the sort of cybersecurity type uh, things. But there's uh, revenge porn, there's sexting, there's crimes that are facilitated online. So, that would be human trafficking, that would be organ trafficking, sex trafficking.
3: And I think that's also part of, you know, in terms of why we're seeing increasingly more. Cybercrime versus a quote-unquote conventional crime the landscape is moving faster than the criminal justice system can keep up with it right now if you want to engage in some sort of cyber criminal activity uh, that's one of the things right now that is actually to your advantage is that quite a bit of that activity isn't technically illegal even just the idea of you know can you be found guilty of something, some crime, if you convince someone to, you know, you know, kill themselves solely through text messaging. You don't, you know, I mean, you're, just, it's, you're not illegally breaking into anybody's hardware or software. You're just, you know, you're just talking to a person and, hey, and, and just, you know, in terms of what a person is really guilty of, you know, but that's just one example. I mean, there's all kinds of crimes right now where even the definition of it as a crime it's a it's a little uh you know, uncertain. Right, it's not a crime yet. Yeah, that's yeah, it's not a crime yet. A so crime, which is yeah. you know, and so it so we can argue it's deviant, maybe, yeah. But is is it actually illegal? Eh, maybe, maybe not. But that's the advantage a lot of offenders have right now is that the law doesn't even know <laughs> what to, how to define what they're doing, let alone to define a sanction for it. So
2: You're right. It's uh sometimes laws are either not there or they're misapplied. So the 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 most interesting one for me is um, how child pornography laws are used to prosecute sexting. So actually there was a case in Maryland where a uh, student, a female student, uh, sent a video of herself, a nude video of herself, to three of her classmates. Well, technically under child pornography distribution laws, that's an offense. But obviously that's not the intent of the law. The intent of the law is to protect young people, but in this case... She was convicted of trafficking in child pornography, her own images. She was given probation, she was electronically monitored and she had to take some kind of counseling. So that's kind of, that's kind of weird and that happens all the time. It's just we have to learn what it is that uh, we can and cannot do. So like even when I'm teaching my students, I have them go on the dark net, and the first thing they say is, "Oh, wow! Can we can we do this? Right? Because <laughs> yes. they, it's such a it's such a new yeah. thing, and it seems like it should be illegal. Yeah. But like you were saying, it's it's deviant. And then I even have them get uh, download uh, Trojan uh, viruses because you can go and get those things. Right? And then they ask me, "Is it is it illegal?" And I say, "Well, no. The owning of code is not illegal. It's what it's what you do with it." Right.
0: So there is an area where we are over-criminalizing online behavior. Are there other areas besides teenager sexting where you think we might be doing that?
2: I think so. Uh, recently, there was a law last year passed by the House and uh, and uh, the Senate and signed by Donald Trump where it criminalized the advertising of sexual services on platforms. So um the main example would be Backpage, which was seized by the FBI. But also Craigslist had to remove their classified ads. Now, the intent of that uh, law was to protect kids who may be sex trafficked, which uh, sounds good on, on the surface. Right. However, um, many sex workers argue that it has made their jobs more dangerous because now instead of safely advertising their services online, they can no longer do that, and then they have to do it in other ways. So that may be a sort of an over overreach of a law.
0: Do you think cybercrime has mostly to do with financial theft, things such as cryptocurrency or hacking into um, a, a financial institution, or the fear that we all have that our online banking in some way will be hacked into, or is it more these other areas of invasion of privacy and cyberbullying?
3: I would say that maybe if we were having this conversation in 2009, most of what we would experience, most of what we would be documenting as far as a cybercrime would be something that is related to a financial loss of some some sort. Uh, Because I think our legal system uh, has been more prone to addressing something that that def- that finite, in other words, if you know, there's an there's an actual measurable loss that can be calculated if somebody takes something out of your bank account, right? I mean, you know, if I have a thousand dollars in my bank account and somebody breaks into Wells Fargo and steals my bank data and steals a thousand dollars, okay, there's an actual measurable effect to that crime. Um, but in 2019, um, I would say that the the range of ways in which people can be victimized. Uh, It's quite vast now, and in fact, in particular, I think now there's more effort now being paid to trying to document the types of crimes where there isn't necessarily an immediately tangible outcome um, because they can have just as much lasting effects, if not more so, than uh, financial loss. If you steal $1,000 from me, okay, I don't have $1,000 now, but if you steal my trust, that's something that may not go away and certainly is not necessarily something that can be calculated
0: what percent of kids do you think have been cyber bullied?
2: The last that I read is about 25 percent or between 18 and 30. So I'll, I'll kind of midpoint at about at about 25 percent. Yeah.
3: And I think that's consistent with what I've seen as well. But then there's also yeah. the problem with cyber, cyber bullying is, is it is one of those types of offenses that is classically underreported or misreported. You know what I mean, so some kids don't, Know or don't even know that they're being cyberbullied, let alone or some don't want to admit to being cyberbullied.
2: You're right that's, that some people aren't aware that what they've just experienced was cyberbullying. But I, I also think that how we measure cyberbullying matters. So if you go to the the uh, government website, uh, it's measured as have you ever been someone has shared a picture or taunted you right. or said something nasty yeah. to you? And that's where you get a 25 percent. Uh, sometimes 30, 35%. Okay, so that, that might be a nice general way of talking about cyberbullying, but researchers who try to understand the effects of cyberbullying know that that's not enough. Right. But, uh, but real cyberbullying that creates trauma and stress comes from this behavior being chronic, being uh, repeated, and also where there is a power differential between the victim uh, and the person or group that's doing uh, the bullying. When, when you have those conditions in place, then you get all of the negative effects, uh, which would be dropping out of school. Uh, the research that I've done with uh, a graduate student of mine, we, we saw that there's a relationship between being cyberbullied and drugs, alcohol, multiple sex partners. Uh, so these kinds of negative behaviors really occur in a small subset of those who say that they are cyberbullied.
3: The conservative estimates are high enough that it should be prompting action. It should be prompting more conversation. It should be prompting more um, formal discussion as well as informal.
0: We mentioned also that there is this whole realm of financial loss through cybercrime. Is it big? And what is the most common way we might encounter it?
2: Well, the way that we understand crime is really constructed by the media and by our government. So we know so much about financial crime, and we care so much about hacking because of the particular victims. So we care about who hacks into our government networks, and we care about who hacks into large financial in- institutions. So we, every time there's a big breach and it gets reported, it's all over the news. And uh, it's certainly the case that we have to protect those networks. Um, I guess we'd call that critical infrastructure. As time goes on, though, I think we'll, we'll start to shift a little bit and start looking at these human-centered crimes more. And then instead of asking the question about financial crimes going up, which is, which is a fine question, we'll, we'll ask more questions about, OK, what's going on uh, with human trafficking online, or what's going on with drug trafficking, these kind, uh, or what's going on with uh, cyberbullying like, like we just talked about
3: we're going to start to become a little more aware, a little more broader in terms of understanding just even the idea of financial loss that's associated with any type of crime. For example, the cost associated with something like swatting, when you call in a false report of of an emergency situation with the intent of inciting some sort of an aggressive response from either public safety or law enforcement agencies. Now, this has happened before. It's not like, you know, people haven't called in for false reports to police officers or fire departments before. But the phenomenon is really something that grew out of the um, the online gaming community. There's studies that show that that, there ha- that has a demoralizing effect uh, on the, the, the response teams. And not to mention the fact that, uh, you know, ultimately, if you are misusing uh, response teams like that, you're actually potentially taking them away from actually responding to an actual crime or an actual threat, an actual emergency. My point simply being that uh, even though there's no direct cost to John Q. taxpayer or, you know, you, know, you myself, I, th- there's no direct cost out of our pocket. But at the same time, there is a cost in terms of the, the effectiveness of resource that ultimately we may need to call upon whenever we actually have an actual emergency. And that type of broader conversation about the cost associated with digital crimes, cyber crimes, uh, cyber offenses. Uh, that's something that I think will also happen along with what Rod was saying this more, this this focus also on more human aspects, the the human costs associated with uh, with particular types of cyber crimes.
0: Rod Graham is a professor of Sociology and Criminal Justice at Old Dominion University. John Smith is a professor of criminal justice at Radford University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Robots are already taking on jobs previously staffed by humans. Everything from elder care companions to assembly line work. James Bliss is a professor of psychology at Old Dominion University. He is studying how humans might interact with robots that are employed as military or police peacekeepers. Jim, I understand you're a human factor psychologist. You study how humans interact with technology. I didn't even know that was a field.
1: It is a little bit niche um, It's been around since the 1940s or so and becoming more popular uh, as time moves on because technology keeps increasing in capability, and sometimes uh, humans and the way they interact with technology become very complex.
0: And what are you exploring in particular? Your research is into whether we trust robots?
1: Right. So uh, automated devices, and that includes robots, are becoming more and more common, and they're also growing in sophistication. So in the past, robots and we know have handled real dangerous jobs. So, for example, even for decades, they've been in industries and factories. Even NASA has used robots as well up on the space station. For us, we want to know not just how do we interact with them, but how much trust do we have when those automated devices take over certain aspects that used to be uh, controlled by a human. And the particular research that I've been doing lately, has to do with peacekeeping. Uh, that can be either military peacekeeping or uh, police peacekeeping, where people need to go in and try to maintain or keep the peace. And sometimes they are in a country or an environment where they're not very familiar with the individuals involved, and it can be a really dangerous task. So, some years ago, about five or six years ago, the military asked can we employ robots that are armed with non lethal weapons? and use them in a peacekeeping role? What's the feasibility of doing that? Will people trust those robots? Will they obey them? And how can the robots work as part of a larger team?
0: That seems scary to me, to think of robots as peacekeepers. I wouldn't want a robot peacekeeping me.
1: Yeah, if you look at uh, certainly the media and, and movies that have portrayed what can go wrong in that kind of a scenario, it can be maybe a little scary. Um, to be honest, some examples already exist of this. Uh, so, for example, in the United States, there's a robot called Nightscope and another one in Japan right now called PerseusBot. And they are both passive robots that have face recognition and they have voice recording capabilities and all kinds of video recording capabilities. And they essentially roam around and look for, uh, you know, for danger.
0: Wait a minute. Where, where's Nightscope in the U.S.?
1: Uh, there's a night scope that had been um, deployed in Washington, D.C., and I believe there's another one in California that they, had, uh, that they had worked with. So it's kind of a growing thing.
0: What does night scope look like?
1: It's kind of cylindrical in nature. It's probably about four and a half feet tall, and it's, uh, it's I believe, on wheels and rolls around and, um, you know, essentially is meant to be put into a crowded environment where it can keep track of people and events that happen.
0: So your, your research is funded by the Air Force. And how does your research work? How are you gauging reaction to whether people will trust and comply with a robot peacekeeper?
1: So we had a three-year project uh, that involved data collection in the United States, as well as Japan and China and Israel. And for that research, people would essentially play a game on a laptop where they would enter a virtual environment, That was a shopping task in a a marketplace, and their task was to go from vendor to vendor. And as they did this, buying things, uh, occasionally a robot would approach them and announce itself as a peacekeeper, and then it would demand a personal item of theirs. And so they had an on-screen inventory of items, things like keys or telephone, a lighter, things like that. The robot would uh, demand that in the name of peacekeeping, uh, the person relinquish a certain item. And then we would record whether or not the person complied with that. And then we would also give them trust items, a questionnaire, to fill out about that interaction. And this continued uh, for a number of interactions this happened. And then we would look at the trust data to see whether they trusted the robot, how much they complied with the request, and so forth.
0: What did the robot in your simulation look like?
1: Well, we... Varied that, actually, in the third year of our research. uh, Some of the robots that approached people looked decidedly more human than others. So we called those anthropomorphic robots because they had arms and legs and a distinct face. Others uh, were not. They were much more robotic. They were less anthropomorphic. So uh, in one case, it didn't have an arms or legs. It really didn't have anything that you could construe as human attributes, And then there was a middle condition where it was a mix. So there was a robotic base, but an anthropomorphic torso.
0: What did you learn about how people responded to a robotic peacekeeper?
1: Sure. So as we took a look at our findings across the three years, um, a couple of things stood out. Uh, First of all, we noted that there were cultural differences as far as how people considered robots, whether they trusted them in general, as well as their typical attitudes toward non-lethal weapon and weapon use. We also found that people tended to treat robots in quite a bit the same way as they treat humans. And what I mean by that is uh, we found that if the robot made an appeal or a request that was more emotional, if it said, for example, please relinquish your lighter because if you don't, then I may get angry and I may have to do something about it, this kind of thing, people resounded to those emotional appeals much more than if the argument were given analytically or comparatively. We also found that people uh, were much more accepting of robots that appeared to be passive, so passively guarding an area, rather than if they were confrontational and came up and actually approached you. And then the third general finding I can point to is that we found that people were much more likely to obey robotic commands if the robot looked like a human. So if there were uh, anthropomorphic features to the robot, then people tended to um, comply with the demand much more uh, much more regularly.
0: Did you find cultural differences in how people who used your virtual game test of all this responded to robots in these different countries? What were they, the U.S., China, Japan, and Israel?
1: Yeah, that's correct. So we did notice some differences. Um, Some of those were due to what we might call dispositional trust of robots or what what kinds of trust people bring into the situation, and that might be from how they interact with technology typically or what experiences they've had from robots. And in in many cases, people are very accepting of robots. For example, we noticed that in, in our Japanese participants, many of them were very accepting of robots because it is a fairly... Um, standard thing, uh, fairly wide in use in Japan. In the United States, I think uh, you know we saw quite a bit of diversity in terms of what people's opinions were and how they believe you know how they felt about robots. Um, and so, quite a bit of diversity there. Um, there were some similarities. For example, if we took a look at other features like um, you know what are our opinions of weapons the uh, United States and China actually appear to be fairly fairly close together in terms of how people thought about weapons and how they, they believe that they should be used or not used. And certainly there's going to be that segment of the population that is uncomfortable with robots in that kind of a role. And that's part and parcel of what we try to figure out in our research.
0: How soon is all this coming, do you think? I mean, is it almost here?
1: Um, I would say it's very, very close. So For example, you know, I talked about a number of robots before. Um, If you remember the Olympics down in Brazil some years ago, they used robots there uh, to help kind of direct people and so forth. Right now in Japan, uh, the Perseus bot, which is kind of like Nightscope, that's been deployed as part of the 2020 Olympics uh, ramp-up. And so Japan has certainly embraced that part of it there are a number of other countries uh, that have robots in development as well for these kinds of purposes.
0: And are we considering in our other nations like China, considering vast armies of such robots? Is that being envisioned?
1: I'm not sure we're going in that direction quite yet. I mean, I'm sure people have talked about it, but I don't know of anything uh, on the on the near horizon that would include that. Um, of course, I don't know if, if everything about the military and, and what they desire to do either. But... Um, you know, I think um, I, I think ultimately there's going to be a long distance between where we are now and where that actually happens. Um, I know that many countries have their own set of rules about how much robots can be developed and whether they can be armed and so forth, and that's kind of an evolving uh, an evolving situation.
0: What do you think are the ethical dimensions as you look into our trust of robots? Are you looking at it from an ethical point of view? Also, or are you mostly looking at it for what, what can we make work here?
1: Sure. Uh, that's a great question. Um, we don't necessarily look at the ethical part of it. Um, you know, that's, that's a little more philosophical than what we do. However, we do uh, from time to time consider it. So, for example, if an automated device, um, be it a robot or be it an automated car, if it were to harm someone or to kill someone, Who would be responsible for that? Would it be the designer of the robot or the automation? Would it be the person who was um, operating it? I mean, at that point, you have to really think about uh, legal and ethical culpability. And so there are researchers, uh, even researchers at ODU right now, that are considering um, the philosophical trolley problem where, uh, you know, at what point do you decide whether or not to take a life or take multiple people's lives Uh, and that's a fairly standard trolley problem with philosophy but they're subjecting that or they're actually applying that now to um, automated devices we may want to think more ethically about what are the limits what are the what are the capabilities we really don't want to represent are there certain tasks where we absolutely don't want robots to be involved so for example Robots right now have been involved in surgery. They've been involved in, you know, automobile driving and, and trains and a whole variety of things. But are there particular things where robotics uh, where robots as agents are just just flatly unacceptable to the public? Uh, one might be counseling, for example. Uh, we know that, you know, if you go to a counselor, a mental health counselor, much of that involves developing an empathetic relationship with that counselor and, You know, can people develop the same kind of relationship with a robot? I'm not sure.
0: You think about incidents that are now being filmed where there are disastrous encounters between police and citizens, maybe after a car stop. You wonder if there were a robotic stop, if there would be less emotion involved. Less fear, less emotion, less hair trigger response.
1: Sure, that's, and that's actually it's what really um, motivated a lot of this research to where when humans are peacekeeping or when humans are um, engaged in that kind of interaction, it's easy to make mistakes. It's easy to say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing. Um, we noticed this many, many years ago when uh, American warfighters would go over to a foreign country And they would be engaged in peacekeeping, but maybe they would say the wrong thing or make the wrong gesture or something like that. With a robot, like you say, it may be that we can essentially package the best peacekeeping tactics and procedures and essentially ensure that what gets done by the robot uh, is less liable to offend folks or to cause a problem.
0: James Bliss is a professor of psychology at Old Dominion University. Coming up next, predicting space weather. Our next guest is working on two brand new NASA projects, already changing our understanding of how our near atmosphere interacts with the uppermost atmosphere at the edge of space. Scott England is a professor of aerospace and ocean engineering at Virginia Tech. He's NASA's project scientist for a new project called Ionospheric Connection Explorer, or ICON for short, and a co-investigator for NASA's new mission called GOLD. Scott, as a scientist for NASA, you and your team won an award for exciting discoveries about the environment of Mars. Help me understand what they were and why that was energizing for you.
5: From Mars, we were getting observations at the very top of Mars's atmosphere from a NASA satellite called MAVEN. And my portion of this work was looking at signatures of very large scale and very small scale wave motions. And we believe that those are linked to the weather and wind patterns near the surface of Mars.
0: What was different about the discovery than what you'd expected when you were looking at this upper atmosphere of Mars? How was this a breakthrough in understanding Mars' atmosphere?
5: As these waves are moving the atmosphere around at high altitudes at Mars, we can actually see them changing the composition of the atmosphere. And it's bringing perhaps more carbon dioxide up and then pushing it down. And that was really profound. It was something that perhaps we would have said we may see in theory, but we'd certainly never seen it before in data. So one of the main focuses of the MAVEN mission is trying to look at the conditions at the very top of Mars' atmosphere in a way to study how Mars can be losing some of its atmosphere to space and how Mars' atmosphere may have changed over time.
0: And did that make you look at Earth's atmosphere in a different way?
5: Absolutely. The Earth's upper atmosphere is an extremely changeable and dynamic place. It's very hot. Its temperature changes dramatically day-to-day, far more than we would ever see near the surface, and extremely high wind speeds. So it can be blowing at very high speed and in a particular direction one moment and then suddenly change. And what I was really interested in studying in this region is, hey, how does this portion of the atmosphere really connect to down near the surface? How are these two really part of just one whole atmosphere? And some of what we're seeing in the upper atmosphere appears to be a consequence of changes in in weather systems right down near the surface. And some of what we're seeing is changes in the environment in space that's above this region. And it's really where these two come together that make this incredibly dynamic region of the upper atmosphere.
0: So what are you trying to do with these two new NASA projects? Are you trying to get into space to study this part of the atmosphere or just into that thin layer where the upper atmosphere meets space?
5: There are two new NASA missions. Uh, The first is called GOLD and the second is called ICON. GOLD is a mission that launched last year and is now taking data. ICON, we're just waiting for the launch to come up later this year. What GOLD is able to do is to image this upper atmosphere from geostationary orbit. So that gives gold this vantage point that looks like what we would see from a weather satellite. So you see the whole disc of the earth. So gold is able to see the whole of North and South America, the Atlantic, day and night. And that really gives us a, a completely different perspective on what's going on than from a satellite that is flying in low earth orbit much closer to the earth and is moving very rapidly through this region. ICON, which is the second new mission, is actually going to fly through the very top of this upper atmosphere, and that will make these really detailed measurements that you can make up close. And really, there's, there's an enormous power by combining that vantage point with this whole planetary scale view that we get from, from gold.
0: Are these new instruments going to be to your field what the Hubble and subsequent telescopes have been to discovering new planets for that field?
5: I hope so. It's amazing to be working on this at a time when we're going to have not one but two new missions focused on looking at the same region of our atmosphere. When NASA selected both of them for flight at the same point in time, that's when I really started to say, hey, we're actually going to go way beyond what we had originally planned because we'll be able to piece out in detail what's happening with, with one view and in context what's happening with the other view.
0: I read that Golda and Icon are using something called airglow to study the ionosphere. What is airglow?
5: Airglow is this amazing phenomena where the The atmosphere at very high altitudes is able to emit light. So the aurora is a type of air glow. As the atmosphere is impacted by solar radiation or high energy particles, the atmosphere is then able to emit some of that energy as light. From the specific colors, we can tell what the atmosphere is made of. And if we can see how that frequency of light changes, we're able to see if that gas is moving towards or away from us, which is a way of actually making these measurements of wind at high altitudes. So without actually having to be there, we can see how how this region is changing from one moment to the next.
0: Can the astronauts in the space station see Ergla?
5: Yes, as the space station goes into shadow on the night side of the Earth, what they can see is this green glow over the whole planet. And what that is telling us is it's giving us some information about oxygen in the upper atmosphere.
0: So you've yet to launch ICON, but you do have early results in from gold, right?
5: Right. We knew that as this region of the upper atmosphere changes from day into night, that we would sometimes get these very dynamic changes that create these very beautiful fine scale structures in the upper atmosphere. And we had reason to believe from some previous measurements that the conditions that are present this year, that gold wouldn't actually see these instabilities. And practically from the very first day we turned on the gold instrument, we just saw a whole range of these structures stretching all the way across from South America across the Atlantic, around the equatorial region, as far as the coast of Africa. And we really saw just so many of these and how that we were not even expecting to see any of these. And it's really made us stop and rethink what we thought we knew and say, hey, are we seeing more of these because we have a better instrument? Or is there something else going on here that we perhaps didn't understand?
0: Where do you want to get from here?
5: So there's really two aspects to why we want to study the upper atmosphere of the Earth. There is a practical aspect in that this is the region where a lot of spacecraft that are in low Earth orbit, they're actually flying through this region. But then there's also a reason to study this and, and understand the whole atmosphere as one system. That's really fascinating. Those altitudes, which are perhaps just 20 or 30 miles above the surface, we see a very obvious connection to large-scale weather systems, for example, over the Amazon and other rainforests. We see those communicated up to that altitude around where the ozone layer is happening. And all the way out in this region that we think of as space, we're seeing things change in response to weather systems that we experience here down near the ground.
0: Scott England is a professor in the Department of Aerospace and Ocean Engineering at Virginia Tech. He's the project scientist for NASA's ICON. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world. uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz and Cass Adair. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Some of the music from today's episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks this week to Todd Washburn of WHRV and to Bill Foy of Virginia Tech. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell.